As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We're space manufacturing for Earth. Like, right? Like, we're not building stuff in space for people in space. We're building yeah. stuff in space for people down back on Earth. And so that means you got to bring it back down to Earth. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, but you know that. How are y'all doing? I'm fine. It's actually my birthday next week. Yeah, last year in my 20s, I'm really going to soak it up. Of course, I kid, I kid. Somehow, I'm about to turn 44, which sounds old. I just feel like it was yesterday. I was walking around in my short pants. You know, now I'm a, I'm a dad, got a bad back, a tech podcast. <laughs> How did this all happen? But um, I feel good, fighting fit-ish. Um, anyhow, I don't think you've downloaded this. You hear me blather on about my midlife musings. What you want to hear about is manufacturing human hearts in outer space. Yes, that is what we are talking about this week on the show we have Delian Asparov, who is an investor at Founders Fund. He's also the co-founder of Varda Industries, which is a brand new company. Uh, it's about six months old-ish or less. And I believe it is the first company attempting to actually build space factories. And I'm not kidding. Um, so I'll let him explain, but the very, very basic idea is launch costs have just collapsed by orders of magnitude what they once were and they will continue to do so as more private companies led by SpaceX get into the space business. That means that sending up say a 3D printer or some other specialized machine to make stuff that is too delicate or too fine or too complex for Earth where gravity just screws everything up. That proposition is actually becoming and has become affordable. And I was actually pondering this actually when my four-year-old was trying to make a very tall skinny structure with his magnetiles the other day. Now gravity won that battle, my friends, and he got very upset. But I just thought, imagine if he had his own space factory. Those would be some magnificent magnetile structures. Anyhow, that's the idea, just a little more complex. And Varda has just raised $9 million and is actually going to have a go at this. So that's fun. Um, I think you guys will find this really interesting. You know, we just live in uh, extraordinary times. So with that, I will hand you now over to Delian Esparov. He is the co-founder and chairman of Varda Industries. Enjoy. So... We do this every week. We talk to people who are doing all kinds of crazy stuff from, you know, brain implants to 
growing giant food warehouses and all this, you know, kind of runs the whole gamut. And every once in a while, like the first question that immediately pops to mind is, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing something that's kind of, you know, crazy, <laughs> sounds like science fiction, uh, but it's an idea that I've been thinking about for a decade, and I finally feel like it's no longer science fiction, it's uh, sci-fact. So uh, Varda, the company that I helped start, is uh, making the first factories in space. Uh, and so what that means is we're basically producing things that can only be manufactured in microgravity in space and then bring those materials back down. And now, because launch costs have dropped so much due to SpaceX and a lot of the other sort of you know private corporations that have created Space Launch, this type of company for the first time in human history is actually commercially viable. And the reason I get so excited about it is I think it's one of the fastest ways to accelerate humanity's path into the stars. The analogy that I like to give is like California didn't become California because the government subsidized like Lewis and Clark or like very other expeditions, California became California because of the gold rush and that sort of microgravity factories are sort of the equivalent for space where that's sort of the gold rush of space. So you said something, you've been thinking about space manufacturing for a decade, which in itself is an interesting factoid. So why? Like what, what, what was the initial spark here and why? It, and then we can get into kind of what the lack of gravity would allow you to do that you can't do, you know, now here on here on Earth. Yeah, I mean, the original spark, let's say a decade ago, was seeing that there were clearly early signs. And again, there was only just a handful of experiments that had been done on the ISS. But there were clearly early signs that there were products that could significantly improve you know, quality of life on Earth that could only be manufactured in microgravity. So that was probably like my initial spark where I was like, whoa. Like what? Yeah, so there's there's a, there's a wide array. Probably the easiest one to describe, let's say, like the physics of is human organ 3D printing. Okay. So one of the most difficult parts about, you know, 3D printing on Earth, whether it's, you know, metals or cells or anything, is doing super, like, thin walls and complex shapes. Because as you're 3D printing a complex wall, and if it's super thin, it basically starts to flop over. And so the same thing happens with the human heart when you try to print it on Earth, where as you start to create one of the ventricles, it literally starts to basically flop over, and then it's impossible to continue to print up that wall. Versus you can imagine printing up that same heart in microgravity there's no flopping over because there's no gravity. And so it's much easier to have the heart maintain its structure as you're continuing to like manufacture it. And so that's probably the most, let's say, simple like uh, physics uh, to understand for a type of product. That has not happened on the International Space Station, correct? Not a full human heart, but we have done actually sort of uh, miniature sized organs on the International Space Station already. Um, okay. This was done already five or six years ago. Right. Um, and so part of the motivation for this company that really, so let's say that original spark was, you know, a decade ago, but then it was sort of re-sparked uh, about a year and a half ago. As I started to look at this research and I was like, this stuff is so obviously ready and we should be scaling it up and we should make it so that people don't have to wait on these like, you know, organ waiting lists and we should be like doing this at scale. But like the ISS isn't built for doing things at scale. It's a research institution. Yeah. NASA has no interest in like making the ISS into like a human heart factory, right? That's like just not <laughs> what their mission is. That's not what they're, you know, focused on. And so I was like, well, why isn't anybody doing it? Like, you know, I know how it should be done. You should just make a factory that's on its own from the ISS and, you know, bring things back and forth from there. And I talked to a bunch of experts. I talked to a bunch of folks at NASA. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, like that's of course, like that's what, that's what somebody should do. And I was like, okay, but well, then like, why is nobody doing it? And I never really got a good answer. And so eventually I, uh, I decided that I just had to be the person to go do it since I didn't want it to be like five years down the line again. And I was asking the same questions. Right. Nobody had done it still. <laughs> so can we talk about, because it feels like we had a guy on, on the pod a few weeks ago, Eli Dorado, who's a, an economist, and he actually mentioned you guys in his post, um, which is actually how I came across you guys initially. 
And he talked about just the difference in launch cost because that feels like that's the thing that's changing that would make something like your idea actually not just completely insane. Yeah, I mean, the way that we think our economic about our economics of the business is like for these like you know materials that we're taking up, right? We we have raw materials that we take up into orbit and then they process, right? So for human hearts, it's like the underlying sort of like cells and proteins and things like that that you like actually manufacture down here on Earth. But then it's only once you go up into space and you know fabricate them that they turn into a heart. And so for these, let's say like raw materials, there's some dollar per unit mass that it takes to get it up there. And then there's some value per unit mass that's generated, right? So, you know, human, you know, heart costs, let's say $200,000 a pound. And so that's how much sort of value is generated by processing the materials up there. But if it only costs $5,000 to send it up there, then one could actually make a profit doing so versus let's say, you know, a year or two ago or not a year or two, a decade ago, when it cost $50,000 a kilogram to send it up there, then it was a little bit harder to like make the economics work. Cause it's like, yeah, it's $50,000 a kilogram for the raw materials, but like you got to package those up in a thing. You can't just like, you know, put like a, you know, a bunch of proteins and some cells on top of a rocket and hope that like it gets up there. You also need a 3D printer and stuff like that. So it's not like, you know, all of your launch mass is just the actual like raw materials. And so it's the fact that basically, you know, with the space shuttle era, you took launch costs down from, you know, 150K a kilogram down to 50K a kilogram. Yeah. And then SpaceX over the past decade, taking it from 50K down to right now, if you go on SpaceX's website, you can book a launch that's a 200 kilogram vehicle to sun synchronous orbit for a million dollars, 200 kilograms, million dollar launch, that's $5,000 a kilogram. But then where it really starts to get crazy is a lot of my friends that work on Starship are thinking that they can accurately get to 50 to $100 a kilogram by 2024 2025 the starship is the this this new rocket that spacex is working on which is just like crazily optimized for cost um you know i still haven't heard elon like talk about it in public i was hoping in like the clubhouse interview that he did people would quiz him a little bit about this but yeah starship is designed in a way that is like strictly optimized for lowering launch costs as much as possible especially with reusability in particular his use of like stainless steel for most of the uh, mm. most of the rocket which is crazy in traditional space because it's uh, sort of extremely like heavy metal uh, or um like its strength yeah. to weight ratio is not ideal, but it's extremely cheap, right? You can get stainless steel very, very cheaply since, you know, we use it for every fridge on earth. So it's interesting sort of seeing how, as you start to shift your paradigm into, hey, all rockets are reusable and we want to just optimize for just producing these at massive scale, how differently sort of the Elon rockets look, which basically look like, you know, tin cans that have been strapped together with some welders. They do. Uh, it does look, I've seen <laughs> space is the the starship, you know, everybody's seen the, the footage of the last one blowing up when it came back down to land but it looks almost like a cartoon spaceship where it's just like and like even the boosters they're just like it's not like the usual kind of giant stream of fire it just looks it looks kind of funny yeah, no, it is a very funny vehicle, but it is almost certainly what the future of rockets look like more so than basically what every other rocket company is working on. But irrespective of Starship, like we think the economics, you know, for Varda work, even if let's say Starship doesn't exist, yeah. just because there's so many other launch providers that are still also projecting getting it down to 3000 or $2,000 a kilogram. And we still look quite attractive then. The thing that I think most people don't realize is like everybody thinks of space is super expensive. Like building a satellite costs a million and a half, two million dollars. Yeah. But the only reason it does is because it costs a million and a half, two million dollars to send up there. Yeah. And so it would be very silly to like strap together a satellite from like a hundred thousand dollars worth of parts from Home Depot if you're spending a million and a half to send it up. And so people over-engineer it because the underlying costs are so high. But like yeah. the world's gonna completely change when like all of a sudden it only costs fifty to hundred K to send up. Nobody's gonna be spending a million and a half on a satellite. Like that'd be crazy. Yeah. You'd just be better off sending up like seven satellites 
satellites that are $100,000 each and just don't radiation proof them at all. And like, whatever, five of them go kaput, but you got two of them up there and that's all that you like really need. And so the entire like space industry is just going to completely shift. Like all these people that, you know, overspend on super over-engineered satellites are going to realize that that's just no longer going to be the future when it's just so cheap to send things up into space. And so I think now is a great time to start space companies like Varda because we can sort of be prepared for that future and start to engineer our systems in a way where we're predicating them on launch costs, you know, continuing to drop. So can we go back? Where did you grow up? Like, what's your background? Because I think that would be, we can kind of go back and then we can get back to the present. Yeah, so I was born in Bulgaria originally. Uh, both of my parents are sort of Eastern European academic sort of PhD type. Sophia? Uh, yeah, so I was born in Sofia uh, and sort of fled the fall of the communist regime there by getting into Caltech. So both my parents are, you know, PhDs, right. uh, you know, pretty, pretty academic institution. Uh, you know, my mom became a professor. My dad became sort of like an academic researcher slash commercial type. But yeah, I grew up in a household where I knew my multiplication tables way before I knew how to speak English particularly well. Uh, you know, it was always <laughs> drilled into sort of mathematics, physics. Right. Uh, you know, my dad was a, a, a IMO gold medalist. It's basically like the like top tier, like high school mathematical Olympiad. Oh, wow. And uh, 30 kids a year across the entire world get awarded a gold medal. So he was literally like in the top 30 mathematicians of his year uh, in high school. So how does that determine? Is there like a, is it like the spelling bee? Where you have like a contest? Yeah, it's like a pretty extreme version where there's like seven or eight rounds to even qualify to the point where you get to what's called the International Math Olympiad. So in the United States, you start off with like this like 25 question quiz that takes you about an hour and a half. If you yeah. qualify in the top like 5% of that, you get invited to the next stage, which is a like 15 question four hour thing. And if you make it to the top 10% of that, then you're invited to a six question four day thing. And so basically- Six questions in four days. Four that days. sounds so, so terrible. So you're writing these like super long proofs. So the questions just get like harder and harder and more and more multi-step and the proofs just get longer and longer until yeah. finally you make it, yeah, to the IMO. And the IMO is also, I think, six questions over the course of like six days, I think, or something like that. You basically get, um, you know, if you, depending on how you'd like to split your time, but basically like a day per question. Oh my God. But unfortunately, in about like ninth or 10th grade, I started to realize like I was like pretty damn good at math. I was not as good as my dad or at least relative. You're not going to make it to the IMO? I wasn't making it to the IMO. And so around like ninth, 10th grade, I kind of had this shift where I was like, I really want to be the best at what I do. And I don't think I'm gonna be able to beat my dad in math. And so I was like, let me shift into the world of like space physics robots type world. Yeah. I think I'll be like really good at that. Uh, and so that was kind of the plan. I ended up going to MIT. I thought I was going to like become a PhD researcher type and like end up at JPL was kind of the long-term goal. The Jet Propulsion Lab. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I was going to like, that was how I wanted to do yeah. space it was like, I was going to do the academic version of space. And then I think I basically, you know, started to realize I took this sort of like hard left turn freshman year at MIT, where I discovered the world of like startups, entrepreneurship, I did this like, uh, internship at Square, and sort of started to realize like, oh, actually, maybe startups in tech is like the way to influence space much more directly than like continuing at JPL. And so that was like, in like, you know, 2012, 2013, it took about, you know, let's say eight, nine years to go from like, joining tech to eventually getting back to space, partially just takes a lot of money and a lot of resources and credibility to go after space. So I kind of had to build that up in like the normal tech sphere. Yeah. Um, but it got to the point where, you know, I could, you know, sort of raise $9 million in a seed round, which is admittedly a lot easier to do today than it was in 2012. In 2012. Still raising, raising $9 million to build space factories. I mean, that feels like that's a win. I, I think so. I'm, I'm happy with how that fundraise went. I don't think there are many people that could have pulled that off in the world. And so, yeah. So, so, so you, you come out of MIT. So uh, you talked about kind of proving yourself in the kind of 
quote unquote normal tech world. So what did you do before this company? So my first job was an internship at Square. At the time, uh, uh, this guy, Keith Raboy, was the COO oh, yeah. at, uh, at Square. Yeah. Uh, and so he sort of played a role in a couple of different you know, sort of career moves of mine. I ended up dropping out of MIT, uh, starting this company called Nightingale's, like an enterprise healthcare company. I actually convinced Keith to invest in the company. Uh, that's how I sort of got to know him a little bit more. Right. And then I ended up joining this company called Teespring for about a year as their VP of growth. Teespring is like the t-shirts. Yeah, it's like kind of the competitor, like Redbubble and like Custom yeah, yeah. Inc. Like yeah. kind of a, you know, let's say a weird left move for me, not super physics oriented company, let's say. But it was a fun place to really learn how to be like an executive. And uh, again, Keith kind of helped me with that move. And then uh, I was considering starting something again. I wasn't quite ready yet. I felt like for space. Uh, and so I was going to start this like insurance related company. Uh, and so I ended up joining Keith at Coastal Ventures for, uh, you know, about two years as his sort of like chief of staff, started to learn about investing. I was going to maybe start a company, but then I ended up realizing that I liked the world of investing a lot more yeah. uh, and then switched over to Founders Fund with him about two years ago. Uh, and then now I've really started to shift my focus into the world of like commercial space. And then obviously now, you know, starting this company. So it kind of started off as like failed founder in healthcare, tried being an executive, stumbled into venture kind of, uh, and realized that venture might have been a really good way for me to like start to do commercial space earlier yeah. than I expected. We're like about seven, eight months into the Coastal Ventures job. I ended up like finding a commercial space company. There was like this like satellite radio company and we ended up investing in it and i was like oh my god that was when like the switch got flipped in my head where i was like i thought like space stuff for in my career was going to be like another yeah. decade or two out that i had to be like a billionaire to do it versus like whoa i can actually do this like now in my 20s and so i was like okay let me keep doubling down on this like venture thing and i'll figure out how to like keep doing space stuff more and more uh and so you know invested in a couple more space companies the past couple of years and then eventually you know culminated in uh you know uh, incubating varda here at founders fund so you were doing investing before this uh, yeah. So, and right. I still am. So this is a somewhat unique structure where, uh, so I am still a full-time investor at Founders Fund and we on a relatively regular basis uh, incubate companies, meaning that one of the sort of investment professionals here helps put together the team, the idea, yeah. funds it, uh, but then also sort of, you know, joins joins the team on a part-time basis as well. So I sort of split my time between the two, but uh, yeah, we've done this a handful of times, you know, Palantir back in, you know, 2006, uh, Anderil yeah. more recently, uh, about three years ago was incubated here at Founders Fund. Uh, and then now now Varda, you know, sort of most recently. And I'm shocked you're doing it in San Francisco and not Miami. Uh, so the company is actually based in LA. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're down in the uh, El Segundo Torrance area, but Founders Fund is in San Francisco. Although uh, we did pretty seriously debate, we were like, maybe we go to Florida, Space Coast, et cetera, but it was tough. A lot of the team was uh, sort of SpaceX and sort of early, you know, ex-SpaceXers. And so yeah. uh, most of those guys were down in LA. So it's going to be a lot easier to build out the early team if we, if we stayed down there. <laughs> right. And so when did you raise the money for Varda? So I got to know my co-founder uh, now 156 days ago. So uh, it has been a relatively, you know, fast. And how did that, I'm so interested when this happens, because we've had a few people on t talking about like, you know, almost like founder dating or like, you know, like, is that kind of how it, how did it come about? Yeah. So I, I, over the summer was like, you know, with COVID, I felt like I just had a lot more sort of free time under my belt. There was just like yeah. less investing going on. I wasn't commuting. It's just like, I gotta, I gotta do this microgravity manufacturing thing. I've been thinking about it for so long. It feels like the right time. And so I basically reached out to a couple of friends at SpaceX and I very, like very, very fortunately had one of my fraternity brothers that was my same year at MIT happened to do both start at SpaceX after school, but I stayed there and done extremely well. So he's just right. like very, very well regarded at SpaceX. And so I basically went to him and I was like, Hey, like, who are you friends with or who 
from SpaceX has maybe left already that is like extremely entrepreneurial that you think would be a fit for this. And he basically ended up introducing me to our now CEO, Edvarda, Will Brewey. And the reason I say I'm so grateful for it is like, I just, I couldn't have gotten on Will's desk if not for my like fraternity brother. Like I don't have enough credibility in space to be like, hey, you should like come join me as a technical founder. Like he probably would have laughed me off. Uh, But thankfully he had that connection. And then yeah, Will Brewey, uh, you know, got introduced to me. This was maybe like the third week of August, roughly last year. And so he was the former sort of lead hardware engineer on the Crew Dragon. So that's the dragon that actually sent the astronauts up to the ISS. Yeah. Um, but then also was head of mission control for eight of the cargo ISS missions. Oh, wow. So not only had he like built a like spacecraft, but he'd also flown the spacecraft and docked it with the ISS. Um, and so I thought that he would sort of be an ideal sort of candidate as CEO. And so we sort of started doing like the kind of founder dating process. I mean, he was in New York. I was in San Francisco. So we would just do like Zooms basically every other day. And then we eventually sort of found our third co-founder as well, a chief scientist who had basically sent several microgravity manufacturing missions up to the ISS. Oh, wow. um, and so sort of the combination of us started spending more and more time together and then started sort of putting together. So that was maybe like September. We started to work on like early prototypes and business plan, et cetera. October was kind of like, let's put together the pitch deck. And then November. November was basically when we went out, uh, you know, fundraised, closed the round within basically like three weeks, went a lot sort of wow. faster, easier, better than I expected. Really thrilled with the outcome of having both, you know, Trey Stevens here from Founders Fund and Josh Wolfham Lux, you know, being so excited to actually like want to come join the board uh, and help us, you know, sort of continue to build the company. And then a bunch of other sort of figures around the table as well that I'm super excited about, you know, Justin Mateen, Naval, uh, Raymond Tonsing, 50 years, also capital, a ton of people that just like really understand the world of like space deep tech but then also like space is always something that's kind of government related like yeah. we for sure want to be a commercial company but there's also going to be defense applications and government applications for sort of what we're working on and so thankfully have a lot of people that sort of you know orbit within those worlds sort of on the cap table money got wired like you know sort of a couple of days before christmas office opened uh you know second week of january with 13 employees starting full time so uh we definitely went you know pretty fast from basically email introduction all the way to sort of fully functioning, uh, you know, space company. So when you're, when you're finding these other founders and kind of deciding, is there a thing, I mean, is there a certain point where it kind of clicks or is there a certain thing? Well, like this person has, you know, X, Y, or Z about them that actually, I think this will make it work. Cause if you, you know, you end up spending a lot of time with these people, probably more so than anybody else in your life at certain times. It's a human relationship, you know? It sounds like it's quite important. It's important to get that right, I would guess. I tend to subscribe more to the, like, Hollywood version of producing startups where... There are plenty of actors and actresses that, you know, get up on the screen that have basically never known each other before and clearly are able to, like, have a perfect fit. And I think you can actually engineer those things by really thinking through what is the personality of the people, the skill sets of the people, how they work together. And so before I was even, you know, starting to co-founder date, I actually, like, wrote out, like, what were the archetypes, ideally, that I was looking for in the two co-founders that I wanted. I wanted Mm. a CEO that had, like, entrepreneurial instincts, had a ton of credibility in space because I needed him to be able to recruit a lot of space-related engineers. Yeah. um, And, you know... uh, knew how to build a spacecraft and fly it and motivate people. And then I also wanted a chief scientist that was maybe more like academic, understood the microgravity manufacturing, had ideally sort of sent, you know, uh, missions up to the space station. Uh, And so, you know, I make it seem more simple, but I actually interviewed a lot of people for those sort of like, you know, two roles Mm. and discussed a lot. And, you know, admittedly in both of those roles, there's not like that many people. Like when I I was going to say, it can be, it's got to be a pretty small pond. Yeah. There's maybe like 20 to 30 of like the space CEO types. And like, there's literally five of the chief scientists. So in some ways I didn't actually like, once I started to like think, you know, go through all the qualifications in some ways they were like basically one of a kind. And I think we just got very lucky in the way that like we interact with like the way that I describe it is like, 
Will, our like CEO, is a very rigorous thinker, but indefinitely or like definite optimistic, let's say. Like, you know, he's yeah. very positive about the world, but like likes to have very rigorous plans. I'm more of the like sort of impulsive, indefinite optimistic type of just like I tend to not think through decisions that much. And I just kind of always assume things are going to like, you know, turn out probably okay as long as you put in like the work. And then our chief scientist is much more of like the sort of definite pessimistic of like, you know, I like that he sort of provides this counterbalance of like, yeah, he's yeah. always the one that's saying like, this isn't going to work. Here's how it's going to fail. Like, uh, you know, very sort of paranoid. And so, yeah, it's always got very <laughs> lucky that like the dynamic works well between the three of us. But yeah, for sure, you know, it's very different than let's say some of the other incubating stories here at uh, Founders Fund. Yeah, for sure. Some of them have been founders that don't haven't known each other for that long. But we've at least on average, let's say, you know, formed incubations with people that have known each other for a decent amount of time. Yeah. This one is definitely like, yeah, I, I met both my co-founders third week of august of last year so i have you know not known them for more than like six months and yet you know we're raising you know a lot of money and going up to really ambitious things but so far seems to be working so i'm yeah. not going to question it <laughs> as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And what's the age range between the three founders? So me and the chief scientist are probably a little bit younger. So I'm 20, uh, what am I, 27. I think the chief scientist is probably 28. And then I think the CEO is like 32, 33, uh, oh, okay. I guess. So relatively like tight age range. That also helps in some ways of like everybody at the company kind of isn't like this same, like almost like life stage, where it's like yeah. everybody's been around the block already. Like a lot, like I'd say the average tenure at SpaceX of a Varda employee is like seven years or something like that. So right. all these guys have already worked in space for seven years and everybody's kind of looking for the like second big shot at that, but being involved sort of like much earlier. And so because I think it's a little easier to like stay aligned. It's funny, we have like, you know, a whole team of people that is like sort of in that like second stage of their career and like one fresh grad intern uh, at the company right now. So that intern, I think is having uh, an interesting time. <laughs> I'm sure. So so to get to like, what the business of your business is like, so you're talking about building space factories. So how does that happen? Like, practically speaking, because right now you have, I think, Virgin Galactic just had their first launch, you know, from the 747 wing recently. Um, and obviously, you have SpaceX, you have whatever Jeff Bezos is doing. It does feel like there's more and more launch companies. So that's kind of driving down that cost curve. But what what do you do to actually create a space factory. What is involved with that? Like, what are the steps? Yeah, so I'll talk one side on the business model, and then one side on let's say like the actual like mission, the actual design of the actual spacecraft. So 
on the actual, let's say, um, you know, business model, the way that you can think of us is like we're like a contract manufacturer, but that happens to be like you know residing in orbit. Um, okay. And so, you know, an example that I sometimes like to use is like think of a, like the relationship between like Apple and Foxconn, right? Like yeah. Apple designs the product, they have the end customers. Foxconn is the one that actually manufactures it. So that's kind of what we are with some of our partners. Obviously, you know, we're American based, and the products that we're working on are sort of much more complex. But we basically work with our partners that have a material that we know has benefit from being manufactured in microgravity. They already have end customers, a supply chain, etc. We just say, hey, let's introduce a new manufacturing line that goes through us that will have a lot of benefit to your end customers. Now, in this first product that we're working on, we're kind of acting like Apple and Foxconn sort of at the same time. But over time, the goal would be to work with sort of like lots of different apples. So rather right. than being experts in human organs, we work with a company that has expertise in human organs. And we just act as the step that basically takes the raw materials and then you know fabricates them in the organ and then ships it back to that partner. So the, your, first, your first product is creating hearts in space. Uh, we aren't yet actually like publicly disclosing like what the first product is. We prefer to do that sort of once we actually successfully you know run a space factory. But it is one of these yeah materials that has a lot of benefit from uh, from uh, being manufactured in microgravity. Uh, but yeah, you can kind of think of it as like yeah, we partnered with an organization that already makes let's say you know human hearts. Uh, we're just you know introducing a new step in their process. So that's the actual let's say like you know business model, and then the actual let's say spacecraft and mission. The way that you can think about it is like we're sort of like a you know miniature version of the ISS, but just independent of it. And so right. we go up on a standard rocket. We send something up there. It's a sort of spacecraft plus factory. And then the most important and most difficult part is, unlike on the ISS, you can kind of hitch a ride down for free in some ways. Of yeah. you know, there's a Soyuz, there's a Dragon. But if you want to be independent of the ISS and NASA, you have to figure out how to do your own what's called quote unquote down mass. And so that's one of the you know trickier problems that we're going after and solving is basically figuring out how do we sort of regularly bring things down on our own because people don't actually bring things down from space very much. It happens actually quite, quite rarely. So so are you guys building your own rocket? So we're going to rely on external partners for like the rockets. I think at this point, like rockets are kind of like railroads. So yeah. I, what I say is like up mass is commoditized, right? Not quite commoditized per se, but like there's a lot of options at this point. Yeah. Down mass is non-existent. Like yeah. nobody, there's no, there's no service to bring you back down from space. Like if you're on the ISS, sure, there's Dragon, but Dragon is like an extremely over-engineered vehicle for like, you know, humans and like costs yeah. way too much. You can't make an economical factory working on that. And so we're making like a much sort of cheaper, you know, smaller version of Dragon. And so that's partially why a lot of our team is sort of the ex-Dragon team just now building a much cheaper, non-human optimized version of Dragon so we can bring things down. And that's probably one of the most difficult parts of the company. It's like the microgravity manufacturing is like kind of already been done on the ISS. Like that's not like scientifically, honestly, that risky. I mean, we, they're, they're, it's not gonna be easy, but like it's not impossible. But the thing that like nobody really does on any regular basis right now is bring things back down from space. And that's obviously going to be key. And for you, that's important because basically you have to bring back down the product, whatever that is. Yeah, the way that I like to describe it is like we're space manufacturing for Earth. Like, right, like we're not building stuff in space for people in space. We're building yeah. stuff in space for people down back on Earth. And so that means you got to bring it back down to Earth. But nobody does that. Nobody brings stuff back down to Earth from space. Because like most of the time you just have a satellite, it takes photos. The way that it sends stuff down to Earth is via like radio waves, right, yeah. back down. Versus like, you know, our stuff is actual material. So we got to figure out how to bring it back down. So this looks something like, you know, like everybody thinks about, you know, like the kind of the teardrop shaped thing that kind of splashes down into the ocean. 
Yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, ideally, we're like you know splashing down in like the you know Utah or Arizona desert. That way, we don't have to deal with like you know sending out a cruise <laughs> ship. And the FAA actually has these types of reentry zones already set up. Nobody, nobody's ever used them, but clearly the FAA is being, being proactive because they think someday people will use them. So you mean overland landing zones, basically? Yeah, because ideally you want to do it over land. That way, you don't have to deal with like you know building like you know flotation devices and stuff like yeah. that into the capsule. And then you know rather than having to like fly out a helicopter and like a you know a speedboat, instead you can just go out with some buddies on an ATV in the middle of the utah desert so and and pick yourself up a heart yeah exactly pick yourself up a heart uh that you're you know watching <laughs> fall from a parachute <laughs> and just uh, and uh pardon my ignorance but like so you're you have to build this kind of this factory but what is the size of these in other words do you have to send it up in pieces and then assemble it up there or would it be kind of like a micro factory like the size of i don't know a bedroom or something that it's all kind of self-contained already yeah, for for a long time, it's going to be entirely self-contained. At some point, when we're getting to like massive, massive scale, then sure, it looks more like the ISS. We got to dock these like modules together and start to assemble it. But you know, that's further down the line when we're you know becoming super successful at this. Uh, for the first couple, they're sort of like self-contained. It kind of all goes up together, uh, manufacturers, and then a portion of it you know comes down. And what's the size of it? The first mission, I, I don't think we're like yet discussing like the exact size. Well, once we're actually sort of you know succeeding with that mission, partially it's just like I don't love the space companies that like sort of overpromise and then under like, yeah. deliver. And so I want to talk about that stuff once we like actually succeeded. So I want to talk about space factories. I'll, I'll talk about them in more detail once I can actually say like, hey, here's the exact size. And by the way, we've like succeeded at it. Right. Um, you know, here's our you know first mission and how it went. So and and how long before you think you would be? I mean, speaking of. Uh, over-promising and under-delivering. I know this is kind of your tempting fate here, but kind of timeline, when do you think roughly you could send up this first model and show that it works? We think we'll be able to do that in two years. Two years from now? Yeah, two years from today. Right. So Q1, you know, 2023. And you say you raise money in three weeks. I mean, that sounds very fast. And is it because that, you know, because for the man on the street, they're like, space factories that sounds bananas but is it because here where you know we have in california we have spacex and you know we've also had on this uh program planet you know the the little kind of shoebox size satellites we've had them on as well and a few other folks is it because here every people see the economics and they see the science and where it's going they're like well a kind of of course yeah, I think the thing that I didn't appreciate, I thought it was going to be a lot harder than I expected. I think the thing that I didn't appreciate is, I guess I'm just not the only investor that's been thinking about, you know, space factories. And then I think also we just did, you know, partially from having a VC on the founding team, we spent a lot of time thinking through the investment pitch. Like, yeah, three weeks was the actual like pitching, but like, yeah, we spent like six weeks preparing the deck, practicing with like VCs that I know, with investors that I know. And so it's sort of like an unfair comparison in some way of like, it's a lot easier to do this stuff once you're like sort of inside the ecosystem and understand how it functions and know sort of how people think about these types of companies. Yeah. And so, you know, our pitch was sort of quote unquote, you know, pitch perfect, let's say. Uh, but I think part of it is like, yeah, there's like a real economic use case. Like, I think we did a you know solid job in sort of the investor presentations of explaining like this isn't just like a sci-fi. Like, here's our exact step-by-step plan, and here's how we like sort of you know are going to make money, prove this out. Like, this is going to be something that is actually like, commercially viable, not something that's like a decade out that you have to like you know fund for forever. And so that plus you know space has just gotten a lot less capital intensive. Yeah. And so the amount of money that we need to raise to like get to success for this looks a lot closer to like. 100 150 million dollars total rather than like you know the self-driving car companies like a billion a billion and a half and so you know in some ways i think it's also just like you know much sort of 
more bite-sized slash appetizing in comparison to, you know, something like this would have taken a billion and a half dollars like five years ago to do. Yeah. Well, cause as you say, I mean, what was it, what was the number you quoted price per kilo it was like 150 grand on the space shuttle or something like that? Yeah, it was 150 grand. And so it's like, you know, literally multiply by 30, right? <laughs> In order yeah. to like figure out what you need to do. So take my 150 million, multiply by 30, that becomes a lot more difficult for VCs yeah. to be willing to swallow. I'd say that it's both launch cost dropping, but then also just like VC, like dollars in the VC ecosystem. Like, you know, I kind of jokingly described this at the beginning, but like five to seven years ago, there was just no way that like, unless you had basically IPO'd a company before yeah, and you were a second time founder, you weren't raising $9 million in a seed. Versus now in 2021, like I know plenty of like just X Stripe employees that are raising, yeah. you know, $10 million in a seed. And so there's just like the bar for these sort of like mega mango seeds has just like dropped significantly, partially just because there's just so much more, you know, demand for these type of companies. There's just so much more, you know, liquidity in the ecosystem. And so, I mean, I'm obviously a huge fan of that, given that it, it enables companies like this and yeah. for people to take swings like this. But even let's say if launch costs had been cheap in 2015, I don't think I could have raised this in 2015. No. Because it would have just, there just wasn't enough VC dollars in the ecosystem. Did you say mango seed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that uh, a, a really big, uh, I, I mean, yeah, occasionally here, kind of <laughs> jokingly referred to on Twitter. It's like a really big, because like the mango yeah, 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 a no, really I, big seed, right? <laughs> I mean, it's immediately clear what that means. I just had not heard that term before. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a fun term. <laughs> so organs are one thing. Are there other things that we should be thinking about in terms of like things that again, back here on Earth, are just too difficult to make or, you know, the the physics and gravity make it an impossibility that if you go up there, you can do it and it would potentially be a very big deal for us. Yeah, so uh, the the other materials, including the one that we're working on, it's a little bit more complex physics and I'll, I'll do my best to describe it in as layman's mm-hmm. terms as possible. But Thank you. Um, there are a, a bunch of materials that rely on the structure and form of crystals, mm-hmm. whether it is, you know, protein drugs, let's say is an example, or cancer drugs, where you want proteins to form in a particular sort of crystal such that they attach to a certain part of your cell yeah. in their appropriate way. Or uh, semiconductors, you want to have, you know, certain crystals such that you have, you know, conductivity or you don't want any crystals so that they you know, are defect free. Or carbon nanotubes, as an example, are just like, you know, molecules arranged in a very particular way. There are certain types of glasses and ceramics where you don't want any crystals inside of it. When you think about crystals, all that a crystal is, is a set of molecules that have arranged themselves in a particular format. Yeah. And when you're inside of a gravity field, it can be very difficult to control exactly how those molecules move because there's just so much entropy in the environment. When, for example, we are in gravity and we're heating, let's say, a particular material, typically the material is constantly sort of moving. Let's say like a a liquid or something like that. You have heat at the bottom, it rises up to the top, and then it sort of creates these like convection and sedimentation. But the reason that it does is because we have this sort of oft-repeated adage as a kid, which is like hot air rises, right? And so that affects a lot of these materials where things are moving around basically within these materials, whether it's the cancer drugs or the glass or the ceramic, things move around basically as you heat it. Versus in space, there's no there's no up, there's no down. And so things don't rise or fall because there is no up or down. Right. And so that means these molecules are much easier to control even as they're being heated. Because typically with like a chemical reaction like a cancer drug, you need to heat the molecule to give it enough energy such that it snaps into place. But you don't want to overheat it such that it snaps in a way that it 
goes into a different place yeah. that you don't want. And that's what happens in gravity is like things get overheated or they snap in the wrong way. And so the classic example that I kind of like to give is like with a cancer drug, let's say there's like three different ways that, you know, uh, the, the crystal could form. In gravity, typically you'll just have a third, a third, a third. And so sometimes that's fine. It just means your cancer drug isn't as effective. But yeah. sometimes it makes it so you can't make use the cancer drug at all because like one third of the like molecule formations are actually toxic to your body. Versus in space, you can actually perfectly control and say, hey, I want this very particular crystal. And so you can make it to this type of cancer drug. 100% goes into the exact format that you want. Um, and so if the readers are interested in sort of learning more, the like underlying physics equation that controls all these is what's known as the Gibbs free energy equation. Mm -hmm. And basically it comes down to you can control entropy much more easily in space than you can down here on Earth because there's just less movement and things happening. And so that means you can have much tighter manufacturing processes, especially around these things that are very sensitive to entropy, like sedimentation, convection, and things like that. So right. hopefully that was a layman's explanation. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And in terms of the cost, just where we are today, is there any comparison that can be drawn with, you know, what it costs to create a 3D printed human heart or something, you know, on the ground? I presume in a super ultra vacuum room and all that, you know, all the th all the money and work that goes into creating the factory here on Earth. Is there a comparison to what it costs now if in space or what you're talking about? So the way that I like to describe it is, you know, I've got my iPhone here. I could give Elon Musk $5 trillion in like 10 years yeah. and tell him, Elon, all I want you to do is make it so that if I drop this phone, it doesn't hit my desk. Zero yeah. fucking way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fall and hit the desk. Like we are not yeah. at the point of being able to control gravity. And so with most of these materials that we're talking about, it's not like there's actually an alternative on Earth. Right. They just can't be like, you can make a big ass vacuum chamber if you want to, but it's not a vacuum that matters. It's the lack of a gravity field. And we're not, we're nowhere close. Like we just barely got to the point of like, measuring gravity waves a couple of years ago mm. like imagine somebody saying like hey you just saw light for the first time you just opened your eyes i now want you to control light and make lasers like yeah. from making fire to making lasers was a long time in human history from being able to measure gravity waves to being able to control gravity i think we've got a ways away and so with most of these materials it's actually just impossible so there's no sort of economic analysis that one there's kind of no comparison basically there's no comparison and so it's more just like when you think about a human heart it's just like how much does it cost to recover a heart from somebody that's like, you know, just gone through a car accident? I mean, most of these things have sort of like, in some ways, almost like infinite. Like, you know, you know, there are certain people that will be spending, willing to spend their entire net worth to like purchase a human heart. And so yeah. um, that's part of what I like about this. Is you're bringing things to market that weren't even possible. For sure, as launch costs continue to drop, then you can start to actually attack, let's say, like semiconductor manufacturing, where obviously we can do that on Earth. But it's just better done in space. And that's mm. when, you know, it gets really, really cheap and we have a really large factory where we can start to compete, you know, in those types of materials. But most of the early materials that we're focused on just literally can't be made down here on Earth. And then lastly, so in terms of the level of orbit, is this low Earth orbit generally you're talking about? Yeah. So the thing that's interesting about, you know, our mission and our spacecraft in comparison to literally everybody else, Planet Labs, you know, uh, you know Starlink, et cetera, is like, I don't care where I am in space. Everybody else like has a very particular orbit. They yeah. need to be like above a certain area, right? Like they need to communicate with certain ground stations. I don't need any of that. All I'm looking for is how the hell I get out of the gravity field and getting out of the gravity field is anywhere in orbit. Uh, yeah. And in some ways, I actually want to be in as low of an orbit as possible because like I don't want to be super high up and then have to deal with like getting back down to Earth. Like I want to be just as low as possible so that yeah. I can quickly come back down to Earth. And so, yeah, we can literally be anywhere in orbit and ideally literally as low as possible. Like if anything... 
I would like to be so low so that I just have barely enough time to manufacture the things that I need to in my factory. And then we just naturally start deorbiting just due to atmospheric drag. Well, that's what I was going to add. That's why I was asking, because I know that especially in low earth orbit, like you start falling after a certain point and you just come, you know, like when we had planet on, it's like, you know, they just, at a certain point, their little satellites, they die because they come back down and they burn up and they, they're dead. And thankfully for us, that's a good thing because we're trying to come back down, right? Planet Labs <laughs> right. does not want their like you know shoebox yeah. satellites to come down. We're explicitly like we're trying to come down. So if anything for right. us, being in low Earth orbit is like even better because it's like a free way to come back down the atmospheric drag. Also, one thing that's kind of fun for the listeners is, like I feel like a lot of people don't realize like when they think oh low Earth orbit, the thing that's bringing those like Planet Lab satellites down over time is like gravity. It's like no, it's not gravity. It's like the atmospheric drag is what's bringing you back down. Because like mm. if there was no atmosphere, no matter how low you get, you just stay there in orbit, just continue to right. circle, right? Like you know. Uh, you know, orbit just means that you're basically falling at the same speed that you're basically continuing to go forward. And so it's kind of, you know, centrifugal force is matched with gravity, but it's not right. gravity that's making Planet Labs' like satellites come back down. It's, uh, it's drag. And do you have a sense of how long you'll need your kind of factory to be up there to make stuff? Oh, like two, three days, like super, super short. Okay. Um, so it's what's really interesting about our satellite too, is like, you know, Planet Labs, for example, needs to optimize their satellites for operating for like years on end. Our satellite can literally look like a shoebox with some things attached to it because like we don't need it to survive for very long. Like we don't need right. it to have a crazy power budget. Like it doesn't need to be like made for durability. Like I just need it up there just long enough to fabricate the things, but it's like, it doesn't need to be up there for that long. It's a, it's a very unique like mission profile in a lot of different ways, both like, you know, we don't yeah. care where we go. We don't need to be up there for very long. We want to come back. And so because of that, just like, that's kind of the expertise that Varda is building in house is like the way that one of our investors described it. He's like, Delian, I don't actually care that much about what this like first set of products that you make is like, I hope that it works well and it's economical but like what you're really building is like this expertise in supply chain around how to do microgravity manufacturing yeah. because there are so many unique aspects of this type of mission and of this type of profile that's so different from everybody else in space is doing like if you look at like planet labs versus you know isi versus starlink they all kind of look the same, right? Yeah. They're sending up satellites and they're sending photons up and down. So there's a whole industry that's been optimized around those types of missions versus our type of mission is you know, very different and very unique. So last question, and then I'll let you go. So are these going to be like, I send up, and again, I'll keep using the human heart example. I send up this box. It makes a human heart and comes back down. Or do I send up a box and it makes 50 human hearts and it comes down? So in order to prove out the MVP, we just do one, right? Because like, yeah. what's the point of doing 50? But if it works, immediately we want to go to 50, 100, 1,000, right? And so right. that's where I was talking about as we get more successful, we start to look more like the ISS, right? These like self-contained ones. Because yeah, you can probably make 100 human hearts in a self-contained thing. But if you're trying to do like 1,000 a week, at that point, it needs to look like a big factory that's up there on its own and you're refueling it and docking with it on a regular basis. And then it has basically, you know, the produced stuff spitting out on the other side. And so, yeah, in this first one, we're literally just proving it with one. But like, yeah. yeah, if it works, we're immediately going to ideally scale up. And the thing that I get excited about is like, because rather than just sending up satellites, we're sending up like raw materials and producing on a consistent basis. You know, we we could actually be consuming sort of like more launch than sort of the rest of the like, you know, satellite industry combined because right. we're just sending so much stuff up and down. Like we could be doing like literally a rocket launch every couple of days just to be refueling our factories. Uh, and that's where I get really excited because it's like if we're paying for a rocket launch every single every couple of days, it actually just makes it cheaper for the rest of the ecosystem. Well, Good luck, man. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, uh, I'm excited for it, Danny. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll definitely check back in. Maybe we'll have you back on in uh, six months or nine months and see how see, see how things are going. Cool. Yeah. Let me let me know if you ever want to you know check back in, and obviously once we get the you know full mission sort of successful, I'll definitely uh, let you know how that goes. Awesome. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Delion for taking the time to speak. I want to thank you all 
for listening. And of course, giving us a rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts, because as you know, it helps other folks find the show. And I don't know if we're writing about Varda this week. It might be next week, but we'll be writing about Varda in the paper as well, um, as well as lots of other check stuff there's never a lack of stories so anyhow thank you again for listening um you can find me on the, the twitters at danny fortson you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk and thank you again and thank you to those who have actually sent little tips my way through this acast uh feature it's always just kind of amazing to just open my bank account and every once in a while I'll be like, oh, there's 10 bucks. That's amazing. I can get a coffee now. So thank you. I really do appreciate it. It's good to know that people uh, dig what's happening here. So anyhow, until next week, have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye-bye. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Bake Off winner, TV chef and author Nadia Hussein reveals the violent racial abuse she suffered as a British Bangladeshi in 1980s Luton, her struggles with mental health and how baking has changed her life. Racism and that kind of unconscious bias exists in every industry. And so now that I'm in them, I see the problem with them is that there is nobody else. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nadia Hussein, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.